Hey, dear listener, this is Ian McKenzie, and I'm excited to share about an upcoming offering starting January 26th titled Revisiting Iron John. It's a five-week online journey where you'll dive deep into the classic tale made famous by the late Robert Bly. Iron John ignited a generation of men towards what would become known as the mythopoetic men's movement. Suddenly men, at least in Western culture, had a map to their inner landscape and their outer experience. The exploration of a German fairy tale, alongside poetry and ritual, offered a pathway into the realm of soul work, and the book has continued to touch millions of men around the world. In 2022, the spiral has come around again as a new generation discovers Iron John alongside an urgent crisis of masculinity. What might Iron John offer in the era of COVID, the Me Too movement, AI, post-truth, multi-generational trauma, and biospheric breakdown? Each week, I will be joined by a number of special guests, including Stephen Jenkinson, Sophie Strand, Ramon Parrish, Stefanos Sifandos, Michael Gay, and more. In a new twist, this course is open to all genders and once again begins January 26, 2022. To register, head over to revisitingironjohn.com and sign up. Okay, thanks for listening. Now enjoy this episode of The Mythic Masculine. On today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. People sometimes just want to throw out all the myths about the, mascu- about the masculine. And what I want to do is actually attempt to go back before patriarchy and look and look at them in their situated ecosystems and the, the political biases at the time period when they started to be told, and then to reconnect them into modern science, modern philosophy, modern social theory, um, in a way that, that creates a more flexible, more tender, amorphous approach. I think whenever we try and get rid of something, it comes back up. So this is, this is my attempt to reroute these myths. Many of these myths have been deracinated. They've been taken out of their situated ecology. And I very strongly believe that, you know, you can't study a plant, you can't study a mushroom outside of its ecosystem. You know, a mushroom is actually a really good example of that. You pour a mushroom into an ecosystem and it takes its shape in the soil, in the relationships between the trees. So you can't take it out of that ecosystem to study it. So I think it's important to remember that a lot of the myths we hold as myths are actually abstractions that have been derooted, taken out of their original context. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Sophie Strand, a writer who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Though she admits, it would be more accurate to call her a neo-troubadour animist, with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. I first encountered her work on social media, reading her surprising and beautiful essays from her forthcoming book, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lycanized Lovers, Trans-Species Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine. In our conversation today, we explore the connection between mycelium and myth, and how various gods, from Jesus to Dionysus, 
can be seen more clearly as related to specific ecosystems and specific times. Sophie makes the case to dissolve toxic masculinity by dispersing it within a chorus of diversity, and why the hero's journey would benefit from a little intentional pruning. And finally, we unpack the wild nature of emergent systems, and how wetting our wounds to the wounds of the earth could invite a kaleidoscopic empathy for an ecocentric activism rooted in participation, not salvation. Before we begin, a reminder to check out my offering Beyond the Podcast. This is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where we explore further the themes and ideas touched upon here. When possible, I also invite the guests on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast supporters. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Sophie Strand. Welcome, Sophie, to the show. Hello. <laughs> I love to begin my interviews by asking my guests to share a little bit of where they are in this moment, geographically, emotionally, spiritually, anything that feels called to situate the listener uh, with you in this moment. Thanks, Ian. Um, I'm in the Hudson Valley on land that was formerly lived upon for thousands of years by the Muncie Lenape people, but is stewarded by the oak trees and by the black bears and the mountain lions and um, all of the many different types of fungi that live in the soil, the Cayuga soil very specifically. And I live at the confluence of the Rondout Creek and the Hudson River. And I can actually look out my window down to the convergence of those two currents. Um, and which is a very helpful thing for me, because um, sometimes I can get a little intellectually or spiritually stuck. So to have that kind of elemental reminder to keep connecting and to keep flowing is, is especially in the past year, has been a, a fundamental um, companion for me. Um, spiritually, I think, um, I may be on my 15th dragonfly molt before the pupa becomes the actual dragonfly. Very hard to tell. I'm becoming, I definitely don't feel like a solid being at this moment in time, but, um, I'm beginning to trust a lack of clarity more these days. Yeah. Thank you for that. The dragonfly. I'm curious, how does one molt into a dragonfly? <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, for a long time, I was using the chrysalis metaphor to explain the experience that I felt like I was having, which is that, you know, the caterpillar starts to explode its skin and it grows a chrysalis, it melts, and then these imaginal cell disks reconstitute the caterpillar, I mean, the caterpillar into a butterfly. But honestly, that felt a little too clean. Like you go in, you come out, you're a butterfly. Dragonflies, on the other hand, like they molt out of their skin again and again and again in the water. And, you know, there's no actual set amount of times that they do it. Just at a certain point, they're like, all right, maybe ready to be a dragonfly. Going to crawl up on this blade of grass and dry out. So that felt a little bit of like a better explanation for the indeterminate, nonlinear experience I was having. Yeah. You know, I'm struck by how anytime there's a, a narrowing of focus um, or like, a, you know, like a zooming in to more minute detail that particularly in the you know the kingdom of life that all of a sudden there's so much that gets illuminated and how little 
time is really spent, you know, in these minute by, by most people. And certainly, you know, myself, I was transfixed uh, yesterday. I was down by a river or near my place and I was transfixed by this frog that would just happen to be there. And I, I really, you know, tried to zoom in on the detail of the skin and the patterning. And I was like, this is amazing, this being. Um, so I appreciate in your invitation, you know, for that kind of zooming in to that, that awe uh, and curiosity. Um, which is so much about why I'm excited in this conversation today, because um, you were initially recommended through a, a mutual friend, uh, Matthew Stillman. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and generally anything he points me at, I find pretty interesting. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. He's been on this podcast as well. Uh, and so he, I tuned into your Facebook. I think he sent me a few links and I was struck by just how uh, different and, and unique the perspective you were bringing, particularly to, uh, felt like a, the mythology of masculinity um, from from a perspective or a, a direction uh, that I for me was so unique and and outside of the ways in which I'd seen or heard or read so many other approaches to this subject matter and so of course I was immediately delighted and knew that we we had to talk and um, so I'm again excited to to be here now with you and maybe that's an appropriate place to begin with. Um, what is it that that animates your approach um, to this idea of I've heard you use the phrase rewilding of old myths? Uh, that that how does one rewild a myth? Well, I think it's really interesting um, to think about patriarchy as a translation that's been applied to myths that are actually much older than patriarchy. Patriarchy is is a pretty relatively new phenomenon <laughs> and it's been conflated with masculinity to the detriment of everyone involved. I've been thinking about patriarchy as actually being kind of a narrative dysbiosis. So if you think about what happens in your gut when you take a lot of antibiotics and your whole microbiome dies off is one kind of sticky yeast or candida or bad bacteria is given too much microbiome real estate and can flourish and overtake it and make you really sick. But when you have a biodiversity of masculinities or a biodiversity of narratives and experiences, um, they can keep that in check. Like it can be involved, it doesn't have to be exterminated. And in fact, when you try to exterminate it, you only make things worse. But everything holds itself together in a really resilient kind of way. So I think it's important People sometimes just want to throw out all the myths about the mas- about the masculine, and what I want to do is actually attempt to go back before patriarchy and look and look at them in their situated ecosystems and the the political biases at the time period when they started to be told, and then to reconnect them into modern science, modern philosophy, modern social theory. Um, in a way that that creates a more flexible, more tender, amorphous approach. I think whenever we try and get rid of something, it comes back up. So this is this is my attempt to reroute these myths. Many of these myths have been deracinated. They've been taken out of their situated ecology. And I very strongly believe that, you know, you can't study a plant, you can't study a mushroom outside of its ecosystem. You know, a mushroom is actually a really good example of that. You pour a mushroom into an ecosystem and it takes its shape in the soil, in the relationships between the trees. So you can't take it out of that ecosystem to study it. So I think it's important to remember that a lot of the myths we hold as myths are actually abstractions that have been derooted, taken out of their original context. Mm. 
This is such an important uh, uh, sort of dispelling, I think, of what is, um, I, I share a teacher with Matthew and you've probably seen some of his work too, Stephen Jenkinson. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the school there, he's really spoken to this idea that one of the spells of the West is this idea that there's such a thing as universal. Right. And, and in that sense, the, to, to approach mythology as this idea that, oh, this is a universal myth, um, that is, is torn from its roots and its ecological ecosystem, like you said, it's such a powerful thing to to bring forth because otherwise you're right. There's this danger of of a myth sort of. I think in the the languaging you said in the 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 writing I read something about it. You know, metastasizing or becoming sort of uh, uh, stuck in its its self referential paradigm or, or or not devoid of relationships that actually make it meaningful um, yeah. and and mistranslated as you say. And so bringing back the actual place and the time and the, and the context and all the rest now starts to reveal not so much that they are therefore dated per se or archaic in some ways, but that, I mean, you use this really beautiful metaphor in the writing, which was something like the, the, the myths could fruit again, you know, in, in current context and modern time, um, not the way they were uh, as a sort of universal, this is the way it is, but actually that is relevant and, and nourishing to the cultural moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the myth, the, not the myth, the, the cognitive tool I've been using is the mycelium, which is the underground tubular hyphal network that constitutes a fungi. And the mushroom are actually just the moment when an underground fungi wants to sporulate, wants to spread, wants to provide a medicine. Um, and they're actually these very fleeting poetic expressions of the underground mycelium. So I've been thinking a lot about myths as these above ground fruiting body mushrooms of much older continuous creatures that are, you know, I think of Orpheus going down to the underworld, you know, he's going down into the mythic underworld and then coming back up very specifically to address a specific time period, a specific ecosystem. You know, when a mushroom fruits, it's taking into consideration you know, the dead leaves, the trees, all of the different ecological situated experiences that it has to adapt to. Um, And something that also, I I really wish this book had been more widely read, but Karen Armstrong, who's a religious scholar, wrote a book called The Lost Art of Scripture, in which she really laid out in wonderful detail that scripture is embodied. It's somatic, it's performed, and it's oral. And that it's supposed to constantly be updated to suit changing climates, changing political dynamics, changing needs. And that when you put, when you write down scripture, when, when you, when you alphabetize it, when you create a, a, a text that calcifies, that doesn't shift and change and update, it becomes problematic. Um, you know, I always say like, you know, targums, which were the, um, interpretations, the teachings that were actually taught at the time of Jesus were all oral and they were all adaptive. You were supposed to be constantly changing them. That was part of the spiritual practice. And I think about a lot of the myths and ideas and stories that we hold to be prime as as being ossified. They haven't been adapted. Mm. This is so important too, because it really takes this, um, the danger, maybe illuminates the danger of having you know, something that was, let's say, a relational wisdom or like relational observation, it suddenly turns into 
this is the way it is that right now into this is the way it always is and shall be. And, yeah. I, and I will say there's, there's something I've noticed in a lot of the indigenous guests I've had on the show and even in conversations where, you know, oftentimes when we, we talk about not just concepts or ideas, but, but just, yeah, relational intelligence and wisdom, I rarely hear, I don't think ever one say, this is the way everyone should do it everywhere, right? They generally say, well, this is the way we do it here, you know, or this is the way my people do it. They tend to do it. And, there, and it's not a kind of casualness about it, actually. It's, it's actually a deep uh, relational intelligence, I see, um, to, to kind of combat the danger of this ossification, like you said. And in the, the writing I read, you spoke about, I mean, Christianity as being such a prime example of this, uh, this shift from Jesus, the, the magician from Galilee, I think you spoke to, mm-hmm. to becoming this, to be Christed. Right to to become this something else that is uprooted from the ecology and the wisdom of that actual ecosystem, and I'd love for you to share a bit more of that because it is such a powerful example of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Um, I really came through this through Gnosticism and through um, uh, by marriage. I um, have a lot of Israeli relatives, and I've spent some time there. And I grew up with, you know, not Jewish, but celebrating all the Jewish holidays, going to synagogue, having that experience be a dominant theme. So I came to Jesus kind of slant in an interesting way. So I got to see him in a defamiliarized um, lens, um, which helped me to see maybe there was someone behind the the Christian interpretation who had some more fertile ideas um, that could still be rehabilitated. And um, what's really interesting is that most of his parables, if we go back to gospel Q, which is the back formed gospel where that all the synoptic new Testament gospels are probably based on. And that gospel of Thomas, which is part of the Nagamati text was probably based on too, that all of his parables are, are, are nature metaphors that he was a, probably an illiterate Galilean peasant who went around talking to other peasants about nature. Um, my favorite of that, of those examples is the mustard seed. When he says, you know, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. We just kind of think of that as a platitude, but it meant something incredibly ecologically radical at the time. He was saying to these farmers, the weed that destroys your crops, that is an invasive species that is really, really problematic is the kingdom. And it's here right now. It's in your field. It's present and it's non-human. You know, he talks about yeast. He talks about fermentation as being a kind of magic. You know, he was very, we've really, we've taken him out of the virtuous cycle of decay. You know, the, uh, the vegetal gods that come before him, Dionysus, Osiris, Orpheus, they all go back into the earth to nourish the earth. Um, they, um, they die back into the ecosystem they fruited from. But Jesus disappears from the tomb. He's taken out. He's not allowed to go back into the earth and nourish it. And I feel like that's really what happens with his teachings is we don't let them go back in, into the earth where they erupted from. You speak of awe at the heart of this, this Gnostic understanding of teachings, um, the kingdom of astonishment. And uh, you say, we live in a moment where we woefully blind to the kingdom. And I'm curious to know, again, going back to that right at the beginning of the conversation, right, this tapping into awe, this tapping into like the wonder. And why is that actually such a powerful, um, I, I don't want to say reimagining or maybe remembering of, 
like the heart of what you understand the teachings of Jesus to be? Well, it's it's interesting. I think this is why there's a big focus on psychedelics right now. And um, because they kind of defamiliarize our experience of our reality, they open up our neurological sensory gating. So suddenly, it's not that we're hallucinating, we're just seeing everything that we're blocking out usually, um, which I think is such a fascinating concept, that we're constantly gating out all of the marvels, all of the miraculous sensory messages that are actually present. For me, I think Marvel is that moment where our story ends and our expectations melt. And suddenly we're actually in a story where the, the, the human perspective is not, is not as important as the more than human world. It's a moment where we realize we're not the main character. And that can be actually a profoundly comforting experience when we realize perhaps we're in alignment. We're in an ecological niche. We're doing what we need to do, but it is not the main story. We do not need to be in control. Um, and I also think that Oz is a moment where we feel connection. We feel that metabolic looping with our, with the world, which really does constitute who we are. We are, you know, frames with which matter passes through. We are processes of, of cells rather than concrete solid objects. We are in, we're breathing in air with the microbiome of the ecosystem we're in. And if we can kind of defamiliarize our idea of a sterile bounded individual and begin to playfully understand that we're actually in dynamic participation with everything around us, I think we'll begin to make decisions that acknowledge that our intelligence is interstitial and it is constituted by relationships. And if we destroy those relationships, we destroy ourselves. Mm. How does one such as you become so interested in the my, my, microbial, mycelial uh, uh, web of intelligence alongside myths of masculinity? I'm curious in your story, you know, what led you to to be so fascinated by these realms? It's two different two different um, paths that converge in a very unpredictable way. One, I've always loved mushrooms and fungi. Um, I've always been down on my hands and knees um, looking at them. You know peeling back moss, looking at all the little rootlets and the white hyphal threads. And I got very, very unexpectedly ill when I was 16. And it was incredibly, no one understood what was going on. I was in and out of the hospital. Doctors thought I was dying. They couldn't figure it out. It took a long time to finally get a diagnosis. Um, And when I did, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Donlos, which is a connective tissue disease. And it was kind of an aha moment for me because I'd already loved mushrooms so much. And I had just begun to realize that they were the connective tissue of forests and of the soil. And to realize that I had a connective tissue deficit, I realized, okay, I need to wed myself to this more than human being that I already love in order to... um, heal myself spiritually. Like I'm going to do all the practical things to try and take care of my body. But I also, yeah, something I really, really believe is that we should wed our wounds to the wounds that we have created in the earth. And your wounding is information about what you need to love and what you need to care about. Um, And I think we all, as you said earlier, that's going to look different for each person. Um, and, you know, I think about these birds that are going extinct. There's one in Hawaii called the Kawaiya Oa bird that did go extinct. And you can hear its song, its last song for a mate that's never going to appear. 
And I think that our imperative right now is to fill those empty spaces that we have created, to feel that wounding in ourselves, our own kind of pain at being cut off from the world that we've actually enacted. And we need to go into those empty spaces that extinction is creating, into the landscape, into the relational webs. So mycelium for me is my particular version of that. Of, of wedding myself to the story of something bigger than just me. But in terms of the masculine, it's really interesting. I am a survivor of pretty intense um, violence that happened via the masculine. And the people I love in my life most are men <laughs> who are suffering from patriarchy. And I created a women's group well, for, for non-binary, for trans, for femmes, for women, where we would get together monthly and bring food and share stories about a certain theme in our lives and then help each other relationally see the story, tell the story differently to untie those narrative knots that we couldn't do on our own. But it became really clear about two weeks before quarantine that there was one story we weren't changing, which was the story of masculinity. And that, that we needed to invite the men in. We needed to do that work. And then quarantine began. <laughs> so it was kind of this mo- pullback moment. Um, and so I started to do that work on my own by going back to these myths. And it was a way of healing myself, actually. It was a way of healing my own relationship to the masculine and saying, okay, this is an amazing biodiversity of expressions that has very little to do with patriarchy. And you need to decolonize yourself. So it was a very personal experience um, of trying to decolonize my innate triggered rage at, you know, the monolithic pretend idea of a man. How do you understand patriarchy then from a from a mythic perspective based on your your journey and your inquiry? Patriarchy for me is um, is is the alphabet. It, it's it's written abstracted text that is, you know, it, it's the movement from the ideograph to the phonograph. Um, I, th- I think that's the the terminology. It, you know, instead of having a pictograph, a picture of an animal that means an animal, we have these abstracted letters that mean something that's totally disconnected from environment. It's this it's this bridge between the rigid text and the flexible relational experience of, of oral culture. And it has very little to do with with masculinity or 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 what it means to to identify as male. I think it has to do with extraction and with sessile communities that stay in place and create monoculture. Um, I think it has a lot to do with trying to stay still and and not being flexible, not moving, not moving creatively, mythically, narratively, and literally not moving, creating cities where everything stagnates. So for me, patriarchy is cities, to be perfectly honest. Not that, you know, I'm not demonizing cities, but I do think that they are really, for me personally, they're about trying to figure out how to push down the water, how to keep everything out, fit as many people into a small space as possible, get rid of the waste, you know, ship the waste down to where, you know, poor people live. Cities for me are, are patriarchy. That's an intriguing image. And I know you've also spoken to this idea of the need to, to I think, compost myths um, or compost, um, you know, these ideological structures. And so how does one go about 
composting toxic masculinity or like that's what came to me when you know you spoke about this idea like rather than rejecting it uh, or rather than trying to cancel it well i i mean i talked about this early and i'll earlier and I'll return to it. So when I was struggling to get a diagnosis, they knew something was really wrong with me. So they would feed me antibiotics all the time and it destroyed my gut. It made me so much sicker. I mean, I I ultimately ended up becoming anaphylactically allergic to all antibiotics. So, um, which was a fun side effect of that whole experience, but they, I had, I think I had like over 30 courses of antibiotics in like a year and a half. Um, and just destroyed my gut. And of course, afterwards I had these terrible parasites and fungal blooms in my body, which they tried to treat by killing them, which made me even sicker. And I had to have this very personal moment where I said, I don't want these treatments. They're making me sicker. The answer is not extermination. The answer is to overwhelm these beings with positivity, with good microbes, with good food. And so the way I've been thinking about toxic masculinity is don't give it a podium. Give it, put it in a room with 300 different voices. I really love the idea of polyphony. And um, I'd actually brought something up I'd love to share, which is, you know, the poet Robert Bringhurst writes in this essay, Singing with Frogs, that prior to colonization, the Ifigao tribe of northern Luzon would hold these events where every priest spoke a spirit story simultaneously. And the point was actually not to um, hear any specific story, but to hear them all at once, interacting, discordant, but sometimes intertwining and informing each other. And I think that's what I want. Is I don't think exterminating toxic masculinity heals the people who are embodying it or heals us. You have to overwhelm it with a biodiversity of other experiences, which is kind of what you I mean. I lo- when I came up across your podcast, I was like, exactly. This is not a monolithic experience. You have to have many different voices, many different approaches. Hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah. I was actually, as you were saying too, I was like, Oh, interesting. That's I what mean, you do. I, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Overwhelm with, with diversity. Yeah. Um, and, and in some ways, yeah, invite in possibility and, and new perspectives and ways of thinking about it um, to, yeah, I guess dislodge this sense of certainty, right. Of the way it is. And in, in some ways I do feel like that is the experience of psychedelics when like for me, I'm, I'm not a heavily, heavily experienced, you know, but I've certainly dabbled a fair bit. Uh, but what I recognize is, how disorienting it is, of course, when you when when the consciousness shifts from the quote mundane, and you realize you're like, oh wow, my regular consciousness is just one way of experiencing the world, and and yet when you're in that consciousness, you it, the, the seduction is that oh this is the way it is all the time, and and maybe and for every other being that they somehow have the same kinds of consciousness, and I feel for you, you've managed to bring forth uh, maybe the ability to articulate a different consciousness in approaching uh all of these different subjects so so i feel for example in the like mycelial ecosystem of the different myths that you've uh unpacked or or illuminated through that other those other doorways is profound actually and perhaps i'd love for you to speak a little bit too about like what are some of the threads you know you mentioned others like dionysus and osiris and, and others like i'm curious what are some of those like chapters or those you know blooms that you've illuminated and that have you know been delightful to you yeah um 
so a couple of them, I mean, my main guy is Dionysus. Once I hit on him, I was just like, this person has had a smear campaign. This is not the god of wine. This was the god of liberation. His other name was Liber, which is our word for freedom for liberation. He was the god of Spartacus. He was... um. He was the inspiration behind peasant revolts, female revolts. Um, he was seen as he's a much older, older god than even the Greek pantheon. He occurs in Linear B in Minoan Crete. Um, so he predates the Kurgan hordes coming down and um, slaughtering and overtaking these older Greek, I mean, these older Mediterranean populations of Bronze Age um, partnership cultures. So he's a really, one of the fascinating things about him is he's almost the most mycelial of all of them in that he's always interpreted, even when he reaches Rome, um, as a new god, as being fresh-faced. He looks different in each city that he arrives to. He's always a stranger from a strange land, and yet he's the oldest god. So he's the god of fermentation. And something that I've been loving is, you know, it's only recently with microscopes that we understand fermentation to be the product of um, smalls, of, of, of fungi, of yeast. And before that, we understood that there was a process happening, that there was a being, there was an element that was involved that was divine, and we didn't know what it was. And for me, Dionysus is like the fungal god. He's, he's, he's the embodiment of that fermentation that people at that time period knew was there but couldn't quite articulate. Um, mm. But he's definitely on a rhizomatic underground continuum with, I think, Orpheus. And Orphic legends and Dionysus legends are... Um, they're very heavily centered in Thrace and Dionysus and Orpheus are actually cast as opposed and as, as enemies in um, later Roman legends. But for me, that seemed very obviously to be a kind of way of trying to divide and conquer that they were too powerful when they were together because in their older myths, they seem to actually be kind of the same person, if not mm. friends. So yeah, Dionysus, I, I think that, Jesus is actually kind of the last fruiting in a long line of vegetal gods that um, are associated with wine, with fertility, with psychedelics. I mean, there was this great book that came out, The Immortality Key by, I don't know if you've read it, by Brian Murarescu. But he really charts um, the development of, you know, the Gospel of John is just Euripides the Bacchae. If you put the text next to each other, they're the same text. So obviously the author of the Gospel of John saw that it was really, really easy to convert the followers of Dionysus to Jesus, that they were obviously speaking the same language and that he could co-opt this language from the Bacchae, Bacchus, who is also Dionysus, for the Gospel of John. It's actually remarkable. They're pretty much the same text. Wow. I'm thinking of, I, I believe it was in Iron John that Robert Bly uh, was, he, he, I think he quoted maybe Jim Morrison or something about how he said, uh, you know, or he, he commented that this idea that you, you don't become a god, but you, uh, I think, are you know, inhabited by the go a god. And I think it was Dionysus, right? This, but how, in a sense, he was commenting that this idea that for for one to to sort of venerate or idealize at least that interpretation of Dionysus as the kind of rock star that you know doesn't grow up um, is sort of the you know uh, trashes the hotel room and and live, hard living with drugs and alcohol 
that seemed to be a kind of misinterpretation, right, of that of that energy in a modern context. And I'm curious to hear about that. It's see, it's not a misinterpretation in a modern context. It's a very actually strategic Roman um, smear campaign where they try and divide him from his actual kind of radical anarchic energy that um, they try and um, simplify him and retell his stories. He actually, he gets, he's one of the only gods that gets actually outlawed. He, he's seen as so dangerous that actually there's this priestess, Pakula, this companion priestess called Pakula Anya, who actually tried to open up the, um, the priestess culture of Dionysus. Cause it was usually only women who actually did the sacred, um, rituals to younger men. And this was actually seen as being really dangerous by the older Roman statesmen because they felt like their younger sons were getting radicalized by these women. And so then there was a mass murder. There was a big trial. Hit 7,000 people were killed, you know, and then Dionysus was pretty much illegal. You couldn't, and he was associated with wine and raucousness and partying. Um, but before that, he's actually seen as being a very mystical mystery cult figure that he comes with his flowering wand and with the leopards and teaches you how to embody the minds of animals. That this idea of him eating the raw flesh is a smear campaign that happens later. What he's really doing is perhaps some kind of shamanic experience where you are becoming the lions, you're becoming the leopards. The women would would wear the pelts of wild animals and run through the forest like the animals, which to me seems like a pretty important thing to do to try and embody a more than human consciousness sometimes. And so why is it so dangerous now? And, and like you said, then why was it dangerous then? And why is it dangerous now uh, for those uh, original roots to be reclaimed and, and embodied? Um, because it's, it's chaotic. It's, it's the chaos of emergent systems. It's constant change. It's unpredictability. It, it's very non-hierarchical. It's, you know, the rhizomes connecting in a way without a body plan. Um, no one's in charge. Um, so when you have a hierarchical system, activities like that, the emergent behavior that's unpredictable um, is very, very dangerous, especially when it's enacted by people who you've been trying to oppress, <laughs> the women, the peasants, the slaves. This is interesting because what I think of, too, is that the there's been you know some good commentary, I think, of people like Charles Eisenstein speaking about this idea that the, the sort of... DNA or the modus operandi of the dominant culture is control. Yeah. Right. Or, or maybe, maybe even civilization. Like maybe that's actually the, 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 the dominant undercurrent, which is to enact more and more control and, and how that plays out, you know, populations on the more than human world seems to be that, right. This move to ever more control. Even now we have, you know, more of the security state, um, the, the, the squashing of, you know, alternative perspectives, it seems to be like that's the end game, right? Is it, but the 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 tragedy of that, and I actually think of the story of I think of Martin Shaw talked about Fox Woman Dreaming, of the you know the hunter and the shack and this uh, you know mysterious feminine figure comes to him, and uh, the story you can find online. But the whole idea is that eventually, because he's uh, dissatisfied with you know how she shows up and maybe a bit of that lack of orderliness, that he eventually actually uh, asks her to leave, and she does. And and he's left now the hunter as, you know, the lone man in the shack now, utterly devoid of the presence of this chaotic beauty. Uh, and and he has to contend with that, you know, in a, in a way, that's what he, he did that by sending her away or by, 
you know, demanding control. And, and so I feel like in some ways that's like a, a, a tragedy of the civilization itself that the end game ha- feels to be a dead planet, but that you are ultimately in control of. And, and maybe in some ways, yeah, like this is the sort of, um, I almost want to call it the, yeah, the ossified or the calcified masculine, or, or if we say patriarchal in the sense of the need to exert control over that chaotic energy, which in self is enthralled by, right? Which is, that's the other kind of undercurrent there, which is, of course, it's this fascination, but with the fascination comes fear and therefore the need to control. And I feel like these other gods, yeah, have such a different operating principle. Well, this is really interesting that you bring this up because I've been thinking about this in relationship to monster myths, which is when you begin to subjugate the earth, the earth becomes unpredictable. When you, when you, when you try and kill something off, something else comes back. And when you, when you, um, try and repress something, you become afraid of it. You know, I think Amanda Palmer says like, when you, when you put your demons in the closet, they do push-ups, um, which I love. And I, you know, a really interesting example is that, you know, in older Sumerian myths, Tahom, Tiamat is the mother goddess. You know, she is the person who, constitutes everything not even really gendered more just earth earth that encompassing all nodes all all different types of expressions um but when hierarchical dominating cultures come in and co-opt this um in babylonian culture marduk comes in and turns her in the legend of the enuma elish into a monster who he slays he actually like pours wind into her explodes her cuts open her stomach and <laughs> it's really intense and in fact a very interesting thing is that in the babylonian exile the jews before actually the torah was written down would have encountered these myths and so that in genesis the deep that God goes over before the earth exists is Tahom, which is Tiamat. And so the deep, the chaos, which is the other interpretation for it, the chaos that precedes God, that precedes the world, is this, is this monster who's also the mother, the earth, the earth mother. And we can also see this in Medusa, which Joseph Campbell, you know, he's a complicated figure, but he said some really amazing things. I've read everything he ever wrote. Um, and he really compellingly shows that Medusa is, is this Minoan snake goddess. And then that these invading Indo-Aryan tribes come down and turn her into a monster. So I think we also have that relationship with nature, which is we've controlled it. So we're afraid of it. And it is, nature is an emergent system right now. We've created the very chaotic conditions and at a certain point, they're going to click into a kind of collective behavior we cannot predict. Um, the one thing I want to add is the Earth's going to be fine. We're not going to be fine. And um, the Earth will—the Earth is moving at a scale, a temporal scale we cannot even understand. And it is correcting right now. Um, so our control is not a dead Earth. It's a dead human, <laughs> human population. You know, it's interesting, too, because I do oscillate between that understanding, you know, that um, in some ways there's this balm for the level of destruction that I feel, you know, humans have wrought. And and again, by the system of need to control and decimate more than other than human populations, Um, you know, earlier before this conversation, we talked about Fairy Creek and the, the major, you know, old trees that are being chopped down, possibly as we speak. And so in some ways, I feel like there's a a kind of, I don't want to call it giving in, but a sense of almost, well, you know, Earth will be fine, maybe humans not. But at the same time, the longer that, you know, quote, we wait for humans to, if, if, the, if the idea is that to shuffle off, you know, the, from the stage, 
they're going to take a lot more species down with them. Uh, and, oh, and yeah. I really, you know, yeah, so I'm with this, also this reality of, well, wait a second. Um, but there is a consequence to engaging directly with the systems that are actually causing, you know, this great devouring. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up that I oscillate between those. Well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm combined. I just, I just always want to decenter this idea that humans somehow have any control over what's happening to earth, that the, the earth is moving on a scale that's much bigger than us, but that in no way says that we cannot act the thinker I've been really, really loving is Andreas Weber and his idea that we should really just be thinking in terms of love, that every, you know, that love, love is matter. Matter is always interacting and pushing and constituting itself against other beings. And that, you know, what we love loves us, that if we act with love, we're going to actually act in preservation of these beings that we, we aren't a single species. We're an intertanglement of species. One species goes, species goes extinct and an entire ecosystem frays and falls apart. Um, so yeah, I think that we have to be called to dynamic action every day. Um, especially with those beings that are in our situated ecology. And that's the one thing is I think there's the paralysis of kind of a universal activism that we have to be helping out everybody all the time. And I think the most powerful thing is how can I daily show up for the kin right outside my door? Um, how can I locate the, the ecological issues in my, in my neighborhood? This strikes me perhaps as some of the um, inspiration or the sense of ecological embodiment, right? That, that in some sense, to engage with the world isn't to sort of poke it from a distance, but in fact, to, to be involved in a way that uh, sort of opens up a much more, yeah, uh, I don't know, entangled realm of possibilities. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how, um, you know, all of our senses are built to interact with the earth. You know, a photon of light isn't, you know, my sight isn't this immaterial philosophical concept. It is an actual act of touch. You know, a photon of light is going into my eye. It, you know, it, it's a series of chemicals and molecular dominoes. Um, and I, I think that when we can begin to um, experience our ecosystem as a on a continuum with our own bodies and also as a place of pleasure. You know, I Adrian Marie Brown writes that, you know, we have to make the revolution irresistible. And and that's something I've been really trying to kind of uh, approach from a non-heteronormative um perspective, which is, well, what if activism, what if engagement with my environment was pleasurable? What if it was erotic? What if my partner didn't have to be a human? And, you know, when your partner is a landscape, you're going to fight for that landscape. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, you, you brought up in the writing as well um, this link to Jesus and speaking of the beloved or the bridegroom, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if this might be a time to also touch upon that. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the Song of Songs, which is, you know, a purported to be by King Solomon, but, you know, it was more just kind of an erotic text that all of the Jewish scholars were like, this doesn't really fit in the Bible, but it's great. We're going to put it in anyway. Um, whenever you hear theologians talk about it, they just can't quite explain why it makes it in there and why it's so popular. But the idea of the bridegroom, which is how Je is an epithet that Jesus applies to himself repeatedly throughout the Gnostic and the Synoptic Gospels, for me, really posits him as a lover, a lover of world, a lover of other people, 
um, a lover of ecosystems. And the Song of Songs is great because it's an assemblage of beings. It shows you that a relationship is not just two people. It is an intertanglement of smells, of deer, of grasses, of seasons, of time overlapping with itself. Um, and I, I think that we should approach the world from an act of courtship. And this for me has been really important, which is we have been in a really negative relationship with our ecosystem. So it's not going to respond to us immediately. We have to woo it. We have to convince it slowly and quietly to start responding to us. So how can we interact with our ecosystems through an act of courtship? Mm. This reminds me of Martin Shaw and the interview I did with him. And he spoke about, uh, you know, could you, could you go to the world and, or to the, you know, the hawk and whisper 12 secret names, right? That, that the sense of, yeah, really, really, uh, yeah, a courtship, which actually has a level of, of offering, you know, with it, a humility to it, um, rather than a, a demand or entitlement or a taking. Um, and it's interesting to me too, you know, it's not a big leap to see in the current, you know, construct of masculinity, at least this um, form of entitlement or masculine entitlement to the feminine, uh, or in this case, the the feminine outside of a man, and if you're talking about a heteronormative uh, construct, that there is this uh, this fixation, right, on this um, need to to take from from the feminine, and of course, me too, to me, is really illuminated from a different perspective from this uh, from this seat, right? There's actually a really powerful scene. Uh, I think I might have referenced it in other interviews um, in the film The Last Unicorn. Which I don't know if you've seen that one. It's an animated from the '80s. No, okay, highly recommend it. Okay, um, but there's there's a scene from Archetypal Place. It is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a scene when the king, his name is King Haggard, who's this older, you know, white uh, uh, sovereign, yeah. who has basically harnessed the Red Bull to gather up all of the uh, unicorns from the land and chase them into the sea. And, and therefore, they, they stay in the sea and they, they're kind of crashing in the waves and they're sort of bound there. And there's this very powerful scene where the king is looking upon the, the unicorns that he's trapped in the ocean by his castle. And he says to um, the other character, I think the, the other unicorn, the last one, and says, I look upon them to feel young again. Like basically, he's saying, I need to basically consume them. I need to control them in order to combat my own fear of, of death and dissolution. Um, which again, so that to me eliminates why there is this um, sort of entitlement or this predation on the feminine outside of when, when the man or the masculine feels they don't have access to it themselves or when they don't have access to a sensual reality with the world, which is a much bigger uh, understanding of, of Eros than, uh, again, sexual love between, let's say, a man and a woman, if we're talking about that. So, I see you nodding a lot, so I'm curious to to turn it over to you. Well, I'm thinking about Dionysus, actually, and the fact that Dionysus is often portrayed as being very androgynous and, and having an amorphous sexuality and wearing women's clothes and being able being able to to embody many different flavors of masculinity. And that almost opens up space for the women around him to be really, really powerful and intense. And, and to go crazy and to rule cities and to create mayhem and to run rituals. And there's a way in which a really rooted biodiverse masculinity opens up space for women to also explore alternative modes of femininity. Um, and a, a story I was thinking about when you were talking is that, so Theseus 
who is a, a really, really good um, symbolic container for the Greek invasions of the Mediterranean basis, comes in to Crete and kills the bull. And if you actually look at the history of that myth, the bull has a name, it's Asterian, it's actually a god in older stories. And so Theseus is coming in and killing the older lunar bull god, who was a masculine archetype that was very ethereomorphic god, half, half bull, lunar, changeable, not necessarily solar, able to be a dark moon one day, a full moon another day. You know, the horns have always been related to the crescent, to the changeability of the moon. So Theseus comes in and then he absconds with Ariadne, the lady of the labyrinth, the princess of Crete, but he rapes her and abandons her on Naxos. And then who comes in to save her is Dionysus. And when he arrives, he says, you're wounded, you're hurt, but I'm going to claim you and I'm going to heal this. And you can be as powerful as you want. And he actually gives her a constellation in the sky and he makes the human princess into a goddess. I mean, my interpretation is that she was already a goddess, but through the Greek translation, she gets um, humanized. She gets taken away from her divinity, and Dionysus regifts it to her. So I do think that Dionysus offers this really interesting um, mythological kind of um, interpretation of how the masculine can begin to open up space for the wounded beloved. You know, women are wounded, men are wounded. Trans people, non-binary people are wounded. You know, every expression is wounded right now because we're living inside a universe that is controlled and is sensor sensorially deprived us from our lover, which is the ecosystem that we're in. Um, we're all longing for our lover. Um, and we all need to heal that in each other. So it's not just, you know, I always want to say that there's no there's no connection between masculinity and femininity in a body and any kind of um, bodily attribute. We all have it within us. So we all need to heal it internally and relationally. Mm. Thank you for that. That makes me think of queer ecology and what is the medicine, actually the necessary medicine, the necessary perspective that is rising now. Um, and, and just to say my extent of understanding is that queer uh, is an identity in some ways, but it's also like a way it's a, it's an approach or it's a, it's a verb. These are the ways in which I've become starting to understand it. And I'd love to hear your take on it. It's about stepping to the side. It's about transversal gene transfer. It's about realizing that evolution isn't linear. It's a, um, unpredictable cahooting of two different cells. You know, our very cells are constituted by symbiogenesis, which are different prokaryotes merging together to make a cell. Um, that's pretty queer if you ask me. Um, you think about lichens, which are a strange mutualistic combination of algae and fungi. Um, you know, you, you look at mushrooms that have 27,000 different gender expressions. And um, the fact that certain foxes have um, lesbian relationships and then only one female fox is part of the group mates with the males. The rest are, are all having homosexual relationships. I mean, the thing about it, queer for me means to destroy any sense of linearity, any, any sense of a, an arrow of time, of the dualism that we've created because we have two hands and two eyes. So we think everything comes in twos, you know, that's just our body. That's not necessarily how other bodies work. Um, mm. Yeah. Have you seen the little Nas X video, Montero? I have. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And I'd love to, I mean, unpack it a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, I have done a bonus episode um, on the podcast here where I just did a riff on it because I was so taken by it. Uh-huh. And I'm curious, one such as you, you know, what do you see when you see that video as well as like, what is it so detonating at this cultural moment? Well, I actually thought it was really interesting because it's about a, um, it's about a descent. And the past 2000 years have been about ascent. They've been a kind of trauma response to the violence of civilization. There's so much trauma that happens in the body that we have to reify that with the split between body and matter. And then we have to, to do it, you know, with, with the Cartesian revolution where, you know, there's mind and matter. Um, but for me, the descent is coming back into our bodies, back into the earth. And we've seen that, you know, we've learned about deep carbon, that most life forms are actually five miles beneath the earth. <laughs> There's these kind of almost immortal bacteria and fungi. Um, we've seen it with, um, the wood wide web the mycorrhizal systems. So there's, there's a very literal descent that's been happening in um, the sciences, but it's also happening, you know, it's the descent of Anana. We're going back into our bodies, back into the earth. So him sliding down on that pole really seemed to me to sum up what we're doing. We're going it. We're, 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 we're realizing that purity is doesn't work. You know, you can't ever purify yourself. We're all contaminated. There's blood pressure stabilizers in our water. We are culpable. We every time we turn on our our car, we're we are killing species that are continents away from us. We're all we can't we can't necessarily simplify these things. We can't um, scrub them down with bleach, but we can descend into the lived dynamic participatory reality of them. You know, what do you make of the last scene too, where, uh, and it, spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, anybody can go on YouTube and look up little Nas X Montero. I'm and, trying to remember. Uh, it's been a, a second since I saw it. Yeah. Sure. Well, he gives the devil a lap dance. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and then, <laughs> and then I, and then it looks like he, he breaks his neck. Uh, and in some ways, and then he puts on his crown, right. And then, and then he seems somehow illuminated, you know, with bright white eyes and, and he grows black wings. And some interpreted that scene as, uh, that he, he then becomes the devil. Right, which to me, I don't think that's what it's saying. Because what I picked up on, I think, is actually that he he breaks the binary itself. Mm, I that's love that. Kind of what I, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. But I also, for me, it's also everything has to die back and regrow, even in our own lives. I mean, I think that's where I am too. I think I've been in a death process. I've been a compost heap for a year, and I've just had to say, okay, you know you got to let yourself melt sometimes and then come back differently. So it's almost like that moment in the cocoon where the butterfly is totally melted and then comes out differently. So it's almost like he's receiving the transmission. Mm. You know, if a God stays the same for too long, it gets unhealthy. It does it. It's not applicable to the actual situated experience of the current moment. Looking to patriarchy then and, and the gods of the gods of capitalism, let's say, um, as you've named in a sort of that I think patriarchy and capitalism are the malignant offspring of Christianity, I think you said. But, uh, <laughs> Not directly, but kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder, could you draw that thread then? How do you see that? How well, do you see that as, as what's what's unfolded? And then yeah, what needs to be composted now in terms of the, the myths and the archetypes. I don't. I don't think. I think it's too simplistic to say it's born with Christianity. I think the Roman Empire. I. I, I think that um, pretty much from Babylonian culture onwards, we have this shift away from partnership societies and partnership. You know, matriarchy is not equal opposite patriarchy. It's about you know. I think Crete is a really good example, which is in most of the images that come to us from Crete. 
heroic individuals are not centered. It's mostly pictures of honeybees, weather, zigzags, bees, bulls, you know, nature is divine. The epiphany is the experience of the goddess as a fruiting of nature. Um, So partnership societies are not about women in power over men. It's about women and men dancing together in celebration of their intimate relationship with nature. So for me, it's about that the movement away from this epiphonic, very present, nonlinear time, almost spiralic time consciousness of these partnership cultures into dominator cultures that have are think calendrically, think cyclically, cyclically, uh, not not cyclically. Think like how can I use the seasons to create the crops that I want to create? How can I? Um, colonize these places to get what i want there's something about this at least the current understanding of the hero as well right which i think is this fixation on the hero um i I mean i'm less familiar with campbell's work i mean i know more through secondhand you know conversations i've read some of of sure but i also feel that there's something of this centrality of the hero right which is in some ways a uh something's already happened to a culture when the hero becomes central. And, and Rebecca Solnit, actually, I think had a really good article. Um, I think it was a time Greta Thunberg was, you know, making a lot of press and that, that she was also kind of calling into question this, the, the narrative of the hero as even that consequential, actually, in, in terms of creating change that, you know, a culture which venerates heroes looks to them as the, the linchpins or the, the quote reason. And yet, you know, a, a deeper kind of read shows that it's actually an interrelational web of people and communities and, and effort, you know, that, that can, can create change. So I guess I'm curious too about what is it about the heroic narrative that is this sort of unconscious projection or calcification and why might it need to be composted? My entry point into the hero's journey is, is my favorite mythological figure who is kind of my entry point very at a very early age into storytelling is Tristan from the Tristan and his old myths, which predate um, predate the Arthurian myths and are, you know, the Arthurian myths are a reinterpretation of the Tristan and his old myths. And I, I honestly think they go back all the way to Judea and King David. Um, and I've laid that out in the book that I'll be coming out with perhaps in the next year. And for me, Tristan is a really good example of how the hero's journey is not enjoyable for the hero. And in fact, it's terminal. There's something about the hero's journey that is about cutting yourself off from connection again and again and again and ending it and being totally alone or being dead. And for me, Tristan is always trying to escape it in his actual legends. That He's always jumping out of buildings. He's always um, trying to kill himself or getting in a boat and like going across the ocean back to Ireland from England. You know, I thought it was really interesting in these myths that he tries to escape England, which is, you know, already been colonized by Christianity and is already within this very patriarchal setup to the less Romanized Ireland, where the older nature-based traditions still exist. So whenever he goes back to Ireland, which he tries to do repeatedly, it's like he's trying to escape the hero's journey. He's like, ah, just get me out of here. So for the, the thing I want to say is the hero's journey is not fun for the hero. And I want to be tender to that, that the hero is wounded and does not want to keep going. The hero just wants to sit down on a hill and take a breath and um, hang out with his friends. (laughs) I I wrote a piece called Coppice, the Hero's Journey, 
which is, you know, coppicing is this ancient practice of being in relationship with environment. There's this, you know, very colonial idea that everything we do to the environment is bad, but, you know, indigenous cultures show us that tending our forests and our ecosystems, it, it's an act of love. It's an act of intimacy. Um, and coppicing is this, is this culture in Europe of sylvan culture of cutting a tree back so that it sprouts up as many different trees. And it creates these thickets actually where birds roost and it, it creates biodiversity. And it's a, suddenly you don't have one tree, you have 10 different sprouts. Um, so with the hero's journey, I always want to say like, cut it back a little bit, don't destroy it, but see, see how you can massage it to get more stories. And what I think is a really good example is Wolfram van Eschenbach's version of Parsifal, the grail myth, where, and that version of the grail myth is different because at a certain point, Parsifal keeps saying like, what's next? What's next? He's very monomaniacal and it doesn't work. He gets invited into the grail castle and then he gets booted out. And in his second return in, he finally realizes that the answer to the riddle is not to try and create the hero's journey where he's constantly doing something, achieving something and moving forward, but to turn to his side and to look at the Grail King and say, what ails thee? So the way out of a monolithic story is by asking for another story and by, by realizing that your story isn't the most important story. And that's the big thing that I've been thinking about lately is how can we have a more interrogative relationship with the more than human world? How can we go and approach a mountain, a bird, a woodchuck, a flower and say, what ails thee? What is your story? How can I provide a mouth for you? What needs to be said that I could say in relationship with you? Mm. That's powerful. You know, it makes me think of that that actually requires, though, the willingness to grant personhood, right, to the other, or, or you know, call it consciousness or aliveness, which is the very thing, you know, which most modern people or colonized people would find as just an intellectual fantasy, right? Uh, or even, you know, the, this whole idea of anthropomorph anthropomorphizing, uh, which is generally used as a sort of slander to say like, oh, well, you know, the other than human world, they're not human, so we shouldn't be putting on you know, human qualities like, I don't know, awareness and, and care and all the rest. Um, and so again, it, 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 it requires such a leap. And I, I think again, to Fairy Creek, uh, you know, the blockade where I just saw a photo yesterday of these loggers, uh, seated before this massive tree, right. And they've cut most of it, uh, sort of, I think it's getting ready to fall. And there's this kind of trophy, uh, energy, right? Like, look at us, you know, we, we accomplished this big feat of, getting ready to take down this ancient elder. And I'm reminded as well of the old bison uh, skull photo, which I think is sort of famous around the decimation of the plains bison um, by the colonizing forces then. And, you know, it was seen as, as an achievement to, to have a stacks and stacks of these bleached skulls, right. Of the bison and, and as a sort of um, representation of that winning that conquest of nature. Right. And so it requires a very different kind of uh, yeah, willingness to be in partnership, to be in relationship, to even ask that question. And yet, as you're saying, it seems to be that's the whisper of the way out of the very uh, dead end with, by which, you know, modern culture seems to have found itself in. Yeah, I think the, the, the only piece of advice I have is decenter human narratives and step to the side. We don't always have to be stepping forward. Progress isn't a real thing. Um, the only progress you make in a life is towards death. <laughs> um, so 
progress is always terminal. It's and it it's not a real thing. We don't actually live in a closed system. We live in an entropic system where everything is is collaborating and um, infringing on its other people's space. You know, we we have microbes in our in our gut that could destroy our body if they got out of our gut. We you know we're we're in a very complex system. The thing I've been thinking is, yeah, how do we get people to? How do we defamiliarize people's experience of co- um, consciousness and otherness and animacy in the more than human world? And I actually think that climate change is uh, beginning to do it on its own in an interesting way. Which I've, I've been thinking about the Earth, the biosphere, as being like Scheherazade. That Scheherazade has to tell these stories to keep herself alive in the story with the king. That each story is another night where she stays alive. And so the stories have to be really good. They have to be really dramatic and intense and convince that kind of murderous, <laughs> patriarchal, dominating king to let her stay alive. And for me, the theatrics of the bigger, the larger scale, as Timothy Morgan calls, like the hyper objects of these of climate change, are the Scheherazadean um, stories of a climate trying to get our attention. It's like, all right, the trees aren't alive for you. What about a hurricane? What about another fire season? You know. Mm. I've often thought about that in terms of feedback loops within yeah. a system. Yeah, that you know, feedback loops. Um, are sort of conscious or unconscious, right? That that if somebody's, I mean, if you think about a machine or let's say a car, even, you know, if your your engine starts smoking, you know, most people would probably pull to the side, right, and say, oh, you know, something's something's awry, something needs to be looked at, something needs to be tended to, and yet that's kind of what it feels like is happening with the biosphere. Is that you know we're getting all of these feedback loops, and yet there's still this sort of yeah this maniacal fixation on. Well, if we just invent one more thing or, or just keep keep going, <laughs> yeah, you know it'll kind of it'll kind of fix itself with these sort of you know tweaking the system, uh, and that's clearly not the case uh, as we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think for me the big shift is you know the soteriological salvation theory, you know that we're going to save the earth, we're going to save each other. It, you know, the indigenous people that I speak to that I've listened to their interviews, read their work, they're saying it's not about saving because that's still part of a dominator culture. It's not about figuring out how to fix this. It's about trying to be ecstatically present and open to unexpected possibilities on a day-to-day shifting basis. Um, Mm. What can you do today? What can you do tomorrow? How can you be light on your feet knowing that everything could shift? I mean, coronavirus was a really great example of, you know, you cannot predict what is going to happen that this is an emergent system you know you can't predict when the starlings are going to form the murmuration um Mm -hmm. so you just have to keep flying it's interesting too you brought up uh coronavirus as well because you know early days i tracked some of the narratives that were emerging yeah right and it it was really telling based on um what were sort of human-centric narratives and what weren't and you know one for example is of course the metaphor of war Right, which is a very common understanding of, again, the extension of that war in nature or nature is at war with us. And so, therefore, this coronavirus phenomenon is, is a war that, you know, is a quote against humans instead of, well, maybe it's just nature being itself. And um, the, the narratives that we tell about it really uh, reveal what is our relationship to, to life itself. Um, that's one. And then, of course, another one, there's an interesting, I think it was a film that came out, which was a, a sort of poetic um, transmission from that author who was speaking as the earth, 
speaking as a, like a message to humans to say, hey, you know, time to wake up. Um, and, and so it's, it's just interesting too to, to recognize, you know, depending on who you talk to and, and of course the very real suffering that has come from both that's this virus, but also the re- responses to the virus and the lockdowns and all the rest. Sometimes people can get really, uh, you know, what's the word, charged around this idea of that somehow this is dismissing the human suffering, um, you know, as opposed to holding it within a wider context of, of that there is just a bigger story out there. We have to practice kaleidoscopic empathy. We have to imagine what it's like to be a virus, what it's like to be a bacteria, what it's like to be a whale, what it's like to be an ocean, an assemblage of beings, a symbiont. Um, and I, I think that we can be with our suffering and we can also be with suffering that's bigger than ours. And the one thing I'll say is I am living the question, as Rilke wrote. I am I Right before coronavirus, I had been on a very linear, very arrow of time um, schedule in my life. And I really thought that there were things that were supposed to happen in a certain order and that there was a sense. And my experience of timeliness of order has totally melted. So I'm not sure I know where I am. I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm becoming. I'm not sure what coronavirus is. I think my uncertainty feels like a much more sacred place to be than any kind of control through a fixed narrative. Um, Many people I love have died. Um, They died. Many people I love died before coronavirus. It's been an incredibly hard year. But I do think that whenever we, you know, the whole conversation around viruses and bacteria was immediately militarized. And it it took a long time for people to even realize that bacteria, it was actually a tiny percentage of bacteria that were pathogens and that most of them were actually extraordinarily beneficial and in symbiotic relationship with us actually you know, you deprive a mouse of its bacteria and it goes insane and it dies, you know? Um, so I, I, we, something I've been trying to tell people lately is, you know, our cells, our bodies learned how to have placentas, how to have womb birth through a viral incursion. You know, that that's a viral update. So um, coronavirus has been an incredibly unclassifiable experience. And I think it's, I think I've been thinking lately that initiation never should be known as initiation. It should always be unclassifiable. And I think that people always say to people who are sick, it's an initiation. And I want to be like, it's only initiation if you survive. If you think you're going to survive, it's not an initiation. If you think you understand what's happening to you, it's not an initiation. You have to go to that precipice of complete meltedness in the cocoon. Hmm. Well, I'd love to end our conversation today with just a question too of your new book coming out, which I understand is called The Flowering Wand. Well, it actually has kind of a mouthful of a name. and I'm, in a, I'm a maximalist person, so it fits with it, which is it's The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Rhizomatic Carpets, Lichenized Lovers, and Transspecies Magicians Heal the Masculine. <laughs> wow. So it's a lot. Yeah. And how does that, uh, maybe just say to you, uh, what do you hope to uh, transmit? You know, I mean, certainly we've talked about a lot of the subject matter today. And also, yeah, what do you feel you were able to, um, to, to crystallize, you know, within that exercise of writing this book? It comes from a very situated experience. I, I would say that it's, um, it is a conscious failure 
that there's no way one monologue can be comprehensive, that it comes from my background, coming from my ancestral lineage and trying to queer, trying to rewild, trying to situate in modern biology and quantum physics and philosophy, these older stories, and also rehabilitate these older Bronze Age partnership cultures um, and versions of masculinity. Um, I've been thinking of it as an invitation um, to oral culture. And kind of what you're what you're doing right now with your mythic masculine um, online community, I've been trying to think how can I inspire other people from other cultures, other ecosystems to do this work too, mm. because my my work is nece- not going to be comprehensive. I'm just working with the figures that I have some kind of actual connection to and knowledge of. I do want to. I think my biggest thing is to reroute masculine experience in the more than human world that it's not just about being a human being it's about it's interstitial intelligence it's about those mycelium that connect together a whole forest it's about realizing that we pour into each other mutually um Mm. yeah and and trying to connect it back into its nourishing soil um because it's been it's been disconnected from its ferment for a long time Hmm. i love that image to to reroute masculinity back into it's it's ecological home, I'd say. Yeah. Well, beautiful to spend this time with you, Sophie. So <laughs> Thank much you, Ian. It. Yeah. This this was really, really amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more.